Hello, viewers and listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Slaves to the Algo. That's right, Slaves to the Algo. My attempt to demystify the age of the algorithm. I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data, an AI and big data startup, a podcaster, and the host of this podcast. Slaves to the Algo is an attempt to share my own learnings in the world of data and those of leading professionals in various fields to understand how they are using or being used by data and algorithms in their personal and professional lives. Uh, it doesn't try to portray the future as either dystopian or utopian. It merely seeks to bring the use of data and algorithms more into our conscious thinking selves. And nowhere is the use of data and algorithms more intriguing than the world of sports. Uh, we've been led to believe that sports is the frontier where purity of personal will is the determinant of success. However, it is increasingly becoming obvious that data can shed light on player performance, on audience engagement, on how teams choose players, how to bid for rights, et cetera, et cetera, and so much more. And especially in a sport like IPL that has been managed to become a shortstopper in the 12 short years since it was inaugurated, and it's become one of the largest and the best run sports franchises in the world. And today I'm delighted to have Sundar Raman on the show. Sundar and I have been colleagues before, but what's very important is what Sundar brings to the field. He has over two decades of experience in advertising and media and sports and, and various other uh, aspects of uh, business. He began his professional career in 1995 as a media planner. He literally was in the company that started the media buying revolution in India, Fulcrum, and uh, moved from there to working on various brands to becoming the first COO of the IPL. And in some ways, he is um, the man who really made the IPL a great success. He was also instrumental in all the challenges of running the IPL, shifting it overnight from one country to another, um, creating new auction systems, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Sundar has moved on from that to stints in other corporations. And today is also the co-founder of Phase Technologies. It's a cricket-based collectible and gaming platform. And it's on a mission to build what else but a metaverse for cricket. And from the streets of Besanagar, where he grew up playing cricket, to now the metaverse, Sundar is both a media man and a data man working very much in the field of cricket. Nobody better to have on to explain the intricacies of the IPL than him. Welcome to the show, Sundar. Thank you for having me, Suresh. And uh, if you can just uh, translate whatever you said, it serves good as my introduction which I've been struggling to put together. It's, it's the most impressive one that I've heard of myself. Thank you. I'm, I'm always willing to be your brand ambassador, Sundar. And since you know how to monetize these rights, I'm, I'm expensive. <laughs> but um, Sundar, I, you know, you've been in this field. I mean, you know, you know, literally your entire career has been filled with handling data for brands, for advertising, for sports, et cetera. But before we go into the professional, I'd like to ask um, uh, you know, a more personal question, right? We're all affected as professionals in the technology industry, but we're also affected as individuals by the development of data and AI. And can you share me an example of some algos that you've come across that has, um, you know, some of, you know, you said, oh my God, you know, or oh my, oh my God, I'm fearful. But in the field of sport, which is the field that you do, and I mean, something that was like, wow, I didn't know data could do this. I think uh, yeah, instead of being it on, in the field of sport, something more personal was um, the advent of social media and how you felt like you were in the Truman Show. Um, anything that you said, everything that you said, 
you know, suddenly you say, you know, holiday in Turkey sounds nice, then you start seeing Turkish Airways ads on your, you know, uh, on, on your uh, feed time, timeline. It, I wouldn't say it was scary. It was, um, it, it was a bit of a glut, if I may say so, in terms of the intrusion that happened. And that actually, you know, pushed me into another zone of, uh, you know, what does decentralization look like? How does, <clears throat> how do things look if there is no central authority? And, and um, if, if you look at it from a digital evolution standpoint, a web one and a web two, web two could have been what web three is serving today, which, which allowed a web three development to happen. I think that sort of um, changed some perspectives, helped me change some perspective, helped me look at the world slightly differently. And, uh, you know, the, um, the it, it's more a, uh, it's more a book that I read, which actually put me on that path, which was uh, uh, the age of surveillance capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, which actually, you know, said a few things, which most people are shy of saying and uh, what Algo could do and what the slaves of Algo is doing is, is actually, can actually be um, a demon or, 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 or a blessing depends on how you use it. And uh, therefore, it tells you that fine line when you cross it, when you don't. So that's, that's been my personal experience, which helped me change perspectives, change careers, change, your, you know, at least get myself immersed in new, newer technologies and newer spaces, which hopefully won't go that way. Hopefully not. And, you know, I think uh, most of us who worked in data and AI are also hopeful that Web 3.0 will actually be decentralized and not end up being where data doesn't end up being the property of a few large uh, platforms. Uh, but uh, going back into that, I, I do want to tell a little bit. I mean, you use a lot of data for sport. And I do want to think, is there anything that you came across when you said, when you moved from being just this whole media planning into getting into sports, right? Was there something, what that whole transition that happened before we get into anything that you do with I, <clears throat> that itself must have been a, 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 a very, very big transition for you. What was that led by the excitement of sports, the use of data, and you know, what what was it that led you to make that change? I think the the, the, the if I have to bring it to closer to a sports practicality is most people rely on instinct, and uh, you know, an innocuous comment by one of the cricketers in you know a matter of fact conversation made me look at some streams of data to actually validate or hypothesize what uh, what what is and what is not. One of the things that <clears throat> that I came across and, and the speaker mentioned was, uh, um, you know, it's difficult to bowl to left-handers at depth. Mm-hmm. And it didn't strike me. I said, maybe, because we all think death is flogging and death is, you know, going hammer and tongs at, at somebody. <clears throat> then I went as as back as, you know, Michael Bevan days to Lance Klusner and, uh, you know, all the left-handers and actually realized the economy rate of some of the best bowlers against left-handers at death is higher than against right-handers. Is and that so? Interesting. It is true. It is true. And that allows you to validate a few of the other things. And that's not, that's not serendipitous um, in terms of data validation. It's serendipitous by way of a comment of an educated, informed, experienced cricketer who just meant it without any support of data or more instinctively, more intelligence-based rather than data-supported. When you go back and validate it, that makes you replan, rethink, strategize, and say, hey, how can this be used? And sometimes we, we wait for data to say the things that we, we want to hear or suddenly you know, throw us uh, something which is very interesting and exciting. But the fact is, if you don't ask the right questions, data is not going to help. 
uh, in this case it was a, it was a comment that actually made me look at data very differently and you know sort of make things look um, very very different from that point on and say hey is this is this something that is worth investigating exploring and hypothesizing and, and that's that i thought was a very interesting fact and then you look at it you go back and say you know alan border as a finisher michael driven as a finisher lance lusen as a finisher alvi mockel as a finisher um Uh, JP Dubini as a Ravi finisher. Ravi Jadeja as a finisher. Ravi Jadeja as a finisher. Um, David Miller as a finisher. You know, you you suddenly see that as a as a stream of data. Uh, it, it may not be true in hundred percent of the cases, but I think it is true more often than not. And that's that's um, you know just delving a little bit deeper into that. I had this read this interesting article recently saying that you know to the level that data is available, that the best ever bowler in the history of the world ever against left-handers is Ravi Ashwin. apparently strike rate is economy rate is everything rate against left handers is like wherever you go whatever thing you can take all the variables out of play and it's is the best and that was very interesting to me because you know i actually went into the data of that article and there was a lot of stuff that showed how under practically any circumstance he was um, like that and 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 the question is he obviously didn't become great because of the data but when you have data like that how does a sportsman start to use it and you actually walked and talked with many of these sportsmen so can you give us a few examples of how people you know you go and give them this data how do they use it I and mean, how do they process it as a sportsman well, on a lighter note i think uh, people think ravi ashwin is an off spinner jeezin i think he's is he also bowls off spin i think that's that's uh, that that's sort of the part of the mystery right and that's what makes him a great bowler and and and, and a candidate for all things that you want to be solved in a in a difficult situation and uh, you know that that that's true of many of these many of these guys you take you take the examples of uh, left arm spinners or pie chuckers to to uh, you know certain pitchers batsmen right yeah. so i think there are people who are busted myths and there are people who have fallen for the same uh, myth i think it is nobody goes into a game as far as i know thinking about hey i'm good against left handers or i'm good against right handers they play the situation and they get the best of their craft and skill out more often than not it is it is sort of muscle memory in a manner of speaking you understand the player ravi ashwin is a kind of guy who probably watches every every ball that that the opponent batsman has played uh, before he goes in for for the game and i think there's a very interesting piece about how he bowled to uh, steve smith in the australia series and how he got him out in the first few tests i think preparation defines everything some people don't want to confuse themselves with data they just go very clean in their head and say i don't want too many distractions this is what i want there are some people who go with a lot of data understanding analytics and say you know this is the situation that i need to create to be able to exploit the situation so i i drive up the run but, but just to go into that so today if you take the world of cricket today do a, does a player go to the analyst and say hey i know i'm going to go up against this batsman can you give me some data is there a more collaborative approach or is it primarily driven by the analyst going and saying hey you should be doing this how does it work today the dynamics between let's say the analyst and a team somebody like p dog or somebody and the actual players where does it I start i think that is <clears throat> i think it it is it is more symbiotic more players are wanting more understanding of their own game they started because they want to understand their game better they, they that's how it starts and then they start to understand the game better And, and I think that's a mark shift that's happened. And analysts are an integral part. Matchups are a big thing these days, right? And and some people think it's overrated. Some people think it is important. You know, there's streams and streams of data around matchups against 
you know bowling to uh, to to a, to a batsman at the early part of his innings to latter part of the innings um, you know getting people to buy into that belief system is what the analysts do i think they 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 have to prove themselves in terms of you know here are the situation this is this is what has happened this is what is proven to have happened which may convert some of the you know non believers into believers but it all starts off with hey let me help you understand your game better and, and data is a way to help you understand your game better and that enriches the game overall and, and there is there's active conversation and do they the face currently. the same kind of i mean sundar can you worked in media where we worked with clients i i do that all the time with data and ai and part of the time you know you mentioned something very interesting the analyst has to go and convince the player that i have an insight that can help you that's what we do with clients right but you know that when you go to the clients that's a very hard problem because they all come with their own pre- biases their own prejudged you know views of what what the business should be are sportsmen like that are they more open they are far more open i think if somebody is going to help me improve my game i'm going to give that 10 minutes or half an hour or one hour of time to listen to it because it makes me better I, and there is a definitive marked improvement you know in, in the case of a client there may be a cost of risk which is slightly different in terms of uh, the 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 player at least as far as i know an analyst giving information to help a player understand his game or the game better has never broken anybody's career so uh, to me That's it's, it's worth listening for sure it's it's definitely worth listening for sure and is this largely restricted in the t20 format or do you think that now it's becoming more and more common uh, across formats i mean are people preparing more like this even let's say in in test matches which have traditionally been seen as a more kind of a long form skill persistence kind of a play as opposed to you know the matchups that are very frequently characterized as a t20 game i think the the matchups is a matchup irrespective of format i think it's it's you versus the player so um, the, the the from the analyst lens that i at least i've had the opportunity to work with a, with a few of them very closely uh, test cricket the cost of not understanding your game is far more higher than than in t20 right at least you get to play more t20s in, in the real sense so in fact it is it is even more relevant to understand because you have to set up a situation to exploit a situation whether you're a batter or or or, or a bowler right i think that is very very aggressively looked at so it's not it's 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 generally a, a belief saying it's only relevant in t20 or misconception that it is relevant in t20 i think it's relevant if you're playing the game it's a question of what you choose how do you choose to the the mood with which a batter or a bowler goes into the game may be very different because in a test match you're you're far more uh, you know accepting of leaving the leaving the ball as against you know playing the ball as in t20 but that doesn't change the fact that you you understand your game better and i think that's what world over people are focusing on help me understand so my game here's better. a hypothesis sundar and i want you to validate it with your vast knowledge of both the game and the data you watch a lot more cricket than i do um my belief is that over the last 5 or 6 years the use of data has been one of the fundamental reasons why bowlers are much more consistent in the lengths and lines that they bowl today overall even in test cricket as compared to maybe a decade ago when it was still seen as a skill you know it was seen as a bowler skill but nowadays i actually see every bowler coming out with this clear plan length line almost across all teams uh, in this thing would you agree with that hypothesis i think data is one part of it but not the fundamental necessarily the fundamental part of it in my view i would probably put it to the size of bats 
when you give a batsman the size of a bat that and uh, and he's talking the bowler you have to change your game you don't have a choice <laughs> i think increasingly cricket becoming more and more a batter's game is making bowlers much more smarter uh, i think that's that's important factor in terms of you know change the environment change the conditions you you change yourself and i think that's that's very very interesting and 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 uh, important from a bowler's perspective because at the end of the day each of them are competitors and they want to compete and you you didn't give the advantage to the bowler it's the same old ball as it was 100 years ago right you change the color of it that's the best that you did and you know that that's not the that's not the way that that cricket has moved in terms of the number of players in the field the the field restrictions the size of bat the size of boundaries the uncovered wickets covered wickets a lot of things has changed and i think uh, and you even curtail the number of bouncers so you know what do you do so that now brings me to uh, a last question and it's a thing in your experience do bowlers listen to analysts more or do batsmen listen to analysts more no i think it's left to individuals i think i think it's got nothing to do with bowlers or batters i think anybody who wants to improve their game look at data to understand it but not necessarily be slaves to it and i would be remiss if i didn't ask you this one question in all your years of like you know at the ipl you've been at, you know advising the mumbai indians you've followed a lot of sport can you give us a couple of really great examples of how somebody used it on the field of play a piece of data to do something that was like you know that that helped the team win or you know help win a match up a couple of really nice examples would would would, would round it off no, before think- we go to the next part of this no i i wouldn't put it to data but what i found interesting was uh, probably instinctively if you go back to the 2010 ipl final which was csk versus mumbai indians when kyron pollard came into bat um ms dhoni plays the fielder right behind the bowler and uh, it was it was pretty unique at that time and most people have started to do it and and, and uh, you know he hit one straight to uh, matthew hayden if i remember the player there and matthew hayden has his palms are the size of yours and mine put together and and uh, you know it, it, it's it, it's it, it actually changed the course of that game in my view whether it was supported by data or not i wouldn't know but the fact is it it wouldn't have been without some understanding of the game or the understanding of the batter's ability to play a game and i think that's that changes a few things in 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 cricket and i think people have started to follow that and you know uh, implement some part of that as as the new batters come in understanding the left-handers versus off-spinners uh, you know situation or or you know the the wide yorker situations that people bowl or the slow bouncers i think those are all those are all changing tacks in a game but not necessarily supported by data they're just being intelligence over uh, information i think you use the intelligence with the information you become a better cricketer it's interesting because you know for as long as i can remember you in playing cricket that you almost had this instinctive feeling about what to do when particular people whom you played against repeatedly and i guess um, data is nothing more than the capturing of that intuition in the form of a coded system and then translating that back and feeding that back and saying hey listen this is happening and in some cases it supports you in some cases it may remove a bias um i think this is a question that will interest a lot of people who are listening out here doni does he use data or is he just a guy who's got this only intuition you should ask him that you should you know him you should be telling us the answer i can't speak for somebody else's belief systems <laughs> that's a cop out on that but we'll go on to that uh, so the what's also interesting is if you go off the field of play and i think you look at the use of data in sports uh, and algorithms in sports what's very clear is that the ipl uh, basically started off um uh, you know 
it was a great idea. I just started off somebody, you know, and you were at the beginning. So perhaps you can walk us through some of the beliefs that, that led, you know, the team to believe that this would be a great thing. And especially this idea of the auction system for players and, you know, and how it grows. So right from the beginning to where it has evolved, I think there's nobody better to tell us how, uh, how this has gone. I think the, when it started, the euphoria was backed by a sound media deal. And, you know, that gave uh, assurance on, on the sustainability of the business and longevity. So you could, you could move the other markers. If you have too many moving parts, you're never going to be able to build a business. So if that, that part of it and a vital cog was, was stable, then you could move around a whole lot of the other pieces. Then the franchisees came on board and then the quality of the like, caliber of franchisees was one part of it that I added to the, to the, um, to the entire game. And obviously the, the experimentation of city-based franchises, while it may have been pretty common at that point in time, or you know, very um, commonsensical as we look at it you know, 14 years later, the fact is, at that time, there was uh, there was a, a, a deep um, what should I say um, <clears throat> apprehension, anxiety about is this going to work? Will it work? And I think our our moment of truth, as we defined to ourselves, was you know Brettley Bowling to Sachin Tendulkar in Mohali, Full House, Sachin Edges, you know, caught behind. Is the crowd going to cheer or boo? What is going to happen? And that. That was that was the moment of truth, and you know, once it started to get going, we were reasonably convinced after the first few games. And I think that that time there was still belief system that oh, 59 matches is not going to work. It's okay, novelty, few matches, fine. I think it sustained the momentum. And before you got to all of that, how do you roster in players? I think the the entire rostering in players was was critical part of it, and uh, you know sometimes when you don't have too much time to think and analyze and you know uh, you know do all sorts of permutations combination, you get down with doing things, and that's what happened in, in the case of IPL. It was I think a tea time conversation with some people, and which was why we do it like uh, like like the Christie's or uh, you know the art auction, and uh, you know that that made sense and said okay, it's, it's worth going with it, and. Uh, that allowed rostering of players. It allowed um, you know fairness in terms of discovery of price. It allowed uh, you know players to be bought within a salary cap, so all the money in the world couldn't buy all the players that you wanted. I think that was important from from a construct standpoint. So to me, the auction is is one of the uh, methods. I think what goes behind the scenes in terms of player regulation, the dynamic nature of availability of players, injury replacements. And the entire, you know, you know, set of regulations running into, you know, 40, 50, 100 points, that is what is the, is the nub of what the IPL is. If there is like a, um, like a black box of the IPL, that's probably it. And when you look at the auction, which recently concluded here, um, and there was a very, there's been a lot of interesting thing about how people have gone about putting together the teams and all of that stuff, right? And without going into the game theory part of the auctioneering, because obviously everybody is trying to do some of that stuff. Um, what really does a franchise, what really, how does a franchise sit around and say, this is what I'd like to pay for a particular player and why I think uh, this particular player is worth more. Uh, what's the way all of these strategies are formulated and what kind of data goes into them? Apart from the obvious data of performance, which, you know, which says I want this player because I know he's very good. The whole idea is that, you know, how does this pricing equation work? Is it pure demand supply and bidding or is it actually, because sometimes you find people are paying a lot of money for a player which nobody else seems to 
really value that much. And other times you you find there are players that people should be picked up and then they don't. I think uh, <clears throat> if I can summarize it in in two three bullet points or, or headline stuff, uh, one of it is clearly demand supply. I think, um, and that's not at a at a, at a you know individual player level. That is at at a set of you know there is a supply of overseas batters, top order. There's a supply of overseas bowlers. There's a supply of Indian bowlers. You know that kind of group is. I mean, how many? For example, if you take an opener, each team will require at least two openers, if not three, uh, as backup. So across ten teams, there are thirty opening slots, and with retention, you probably already have eight or ten retained. In which case, with the other eighteen or twenty, is what is going to happen? And within that, if you broadly categorize as a tiered system, I think these are players will walk into eleven. These are players who will, you know, you, you will want to nurture and keep as backups. I think that's the way you say, okay, therefore. What kind of of uh, openers do you do you want, and do you have a preference for a left-right combination? That's how that's how the demand supply works at a at a skill or uh, specialism so, level. Let's say in each of these categories, in some category, if you feel that the demand is going to be far greater than the supply, you basically allocate a larger chunk of money for that particular type of player. You you don't necessarily allocate a larger supply of money. You will need to pick and choose and say, if I have to go in for this, what else gives? I think at the end of the day, um, if I were to, were to summarize, I say two people at once. One is one is demand supply, right? The second is value of a player over time. Um, clearly, that is um, that's important. A young player who is a we, you know, player who's got experience and over a period of time, you know, okay, I see value in this player being a part of my ecosystem for for time to come. I see a cyclicity of so this year. Was was a big option, right? So you know you're going to have the player for a three to four year period, right? As against if you had a last year's auction, it was a one year value for the player, and therefore you want to burn your purse. You don't mind paying top dollars for a player because it's a one year risk, right? That's 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 one second part of it. Third part of it is recency. I think performance recency weighs in reasonably well in terms mm-hmm. of players' performance. <clears throat> you do look at current form. You do look at conditions. You do look at you know what this works. This is not work. This guy is in the news, whether it's a you know a batter or a bowler or an all-rounder. I think that's that's a that's a factor that weighs in. The fourth, I think, is is a bit of a softer aspect. Generally answered is culture. You know, does this kind of a player fit into my cultural mm-hmm. ecosystem? You know, that kind of stuff which sort of you know, overlays into. And into when you say culture, aspects. and when you say culture, you don't mean it's all Indian teams in a way, but you mean culture in a in a playing style. You know, you want to play. It could be, it could be a coaching uh, de- definition, and say, you know, I want this type of cricket. I want this brand of cricket to be played, and I think that's that defines my my DNA, or that defines my how I'm looking at it. It could also be organizational culture, right? It could it could look at saying, you know, I have familiarity with this set of players, so I they played with me. I'd like to have them back, or you know, I, I like the. You know, why do you choose coaches very differently, right? It, it also fits fits in not not because he's the best coach. Alone is also fits in with your with your ecosystem, and I think those are relevant and important factors of of um, auctioning. And the last one, of course, is availability. I think are they going to be available? Continuity of trade, whether any you know other tours which have uh, which are going to come in the way. Am I going to get the entire season with him so that my dependency goes up? Those are some of the stuff that you look at. It. I think that's how generally uh, the auction. Pricing strategies are involved. When you go into the auction, the preparation is is immense, right? You 
people uh, choose to do mock auction where you know each members of the of the support group take up a specific role which allows you to do price discovery in a in a simulated environment so you take the role and you you give a belief system okay they are going to look for an opener they want to look for a foreign fast bowler they have had success with left right opening combination or left right bowling combination they have had success with fast bowler the wicket is a turning track so it may be slow you may need one more spinner than other so do people do these simulations over a few days because they actually are trying to get the whole thing all teams together or i think they they do it over a few days over a few rounds in terms of you know uh, round 1 round 2 round 3 round 4 round 5 so you 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 arrive at certain certain skills and understanding over a period of you have to be it's 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 like it's like play acting right if you were to be playing that role how would you choose your team and that's and with a purse with a with a salary cap and stuff and you know somebody else is competing for it so that gives you <laughs> some insight to do price bands rather than price itself the last part of it which is the most important part of it in my view is people don't necessarily pick players by name there are a few players who you pick by name or you want by name right rest of it you you pick specific roles that you want to fill i want a top order batsman who strikes at 130 plus strike rate or i want a finisher and these are the four options that are available for me i want an express quick bowler i want a mystery spinner i want a you know um uh, um uh a uh, uh, middle over bowler i want an off spinner and these are the options for me so that allows you to say i'm not falling in love with a name i am fulfilling a role and therefore these are the players who will give me that role and then you categorize and say this is ready to walk into the eleven this will take a little bit of time this is investments into the next 5 7 years and therefore what combinations are that's how you allow 23 24 players and each one has a kind of a backup and some people get opportunities and i wondered whether you watched the youtube show that ravi ashwin put out with p dog and uh, nani after the thing practically on the day of the action i don't know whether you saw that but it was a very interesting for the first time i saw a player really doing a real time analysis end of the day and literally going into each thing and why they i mean he was talking to other people including an analysts as to why the teams are constructed what money was being paid for a, a player how a team strategy was evolving i don't know whether you saw that show and um, i caught glimpses of it honestly it was this mid auction uh, mid stream and i i think uh, um, you know there's a there's a there's some quality content that is put out there i put this amongst that in terms of the quality of narrative and an understanding of from a player's perspective absolutely the understanding of the game not just i think for me what was very interesting about the conversation sundar and it'd be interesting at your views is there was an understanding of the game and there was an understanding of what the economics of an auction would be and how we were putting it together so it wasn't like necessarily looking at the pool and that i thought was very fascinating and to find a modern day cricketer doing that in the middle of his career one of the best players in the world was i thought fascinating i think uh, uh, it is it is an interesting uh, um, sort of segue into uh, into another side of of uh, of the scientist ashwin if i may call him that uh, i think the the important thing to note is nobody goes back from an auction unhappy because they paid lots of money or some money to buy a That's player true. out of their own free volition right i mean i i paid x dollars to buy a player so there's no post purchase dissonance on the oh, i bought him i didn't have a choice i don't think anybody says that and i also i'm a firm believer that you don't win a championship in the auction room you win a championship on the field of play and i think uh, there may be over stress and over importance and a bit of exaggerated reality around the auctions that that may carry away a, a lot more fertile minds with greater imagination to 
talk and analyze and you know do combinations the fact is you're buying players based on that day and you know player could get injured you may you may go in for a replacement you may find substitutions look at the example of chris gale who would have thought in that year he flew in from um, from the caribbean and went on to win the man most valuable player in that series and and you know he was not even picked in the original draft the fact is there is there are different motivations and there are conditions situations environments availability i think a lot of things weigh in in winning a championship and you know consistency of performance over a sustained period of time is 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 there to uh, is there to stand by good quality players i think it's important factor in choosing a good option and that is such a great this thing right i mean it's not one in fact somehow to me sometimes i feel that the auction itself has become like a media property that generates excitement among the fans and and stuff like that but finally we've seen some right from the first ipl when rajasthan royals won it and nobody would have given them a chance to the number of times that uh, csk has seemingly like you know with the same set of players done it so it's obviously um, the your price at the auction doesn't really necessarily always completely correlate to your value that you deliver on the field of play yeah look at but it go back to go back to 2018 right and i think that was the auction when everybody said csk picked up daddy's army i mean for a daddy's army the next four years they did three finals one two lost one of the last ball and one year they didn't uh, they didn't make it not bad for daddy's army right absolutely and you know being a strong csk supporter just love the fact that dhoni turns up every time and and does it you know but um so the one last question on the auction before we go to another segue into another area of data and sport which is interestingly at the beginning of the ipl you chose the auction route the salary cap a little bit more modeled on the nba rather than the football transfer route of what the epl and the uh, la liga and all of them use and in some ways i think that's made the ipl what it is but could you walk us through some of the thinking around non transfer open market versus the auction cap route i think uh, <clears throat> football ecosystem is very different i think football ecosystem has a transfer window which allows for player transfer mid season and, and that's that's uh, that's an established system and for a sport that is played over 8 months the nba and the march madness and the draft system is another way of rostering in players i think the um, the ipl system looked at all the options and somewhere along constrained by time constrained by you know or or benefited by not over analysis went ahead with with the with the auction the the reasons why ipl went ahead with the auction was fundamentally saying we must give all the teams an equal chance at the at the this lobet i think in the first three years seven of the eight teams made it to the playoffs which is not bad if you from a structure standpoint and that is determined by a salary cap more than anything else so you have a yeah. salary cap and as i said the regulations which is <laughs> which is the black box in, in the, the ipl uh, made a lot of changes behind the scenes you know putting in the uncapped player into the auction allowing size of squad to be restricted allowing for replacements over a period of time and you know there's a various other uh, thinking pieces that went into making the auction uh, auction is as i said the centerpiece uh, it's it's almost like a like a media event as you called it the fact is it's it's business day it's you're going and buying players because that's that's like buying your assets for business or buying your uh, you know raw material for your business if i may call it that i think that's that's what that event does but outside of it is the environment is the opportunities is the facilities is the dynamism in thinking and and uh, 
and everything else that that provides uh, the game time for for each of those players so to me the thinking was very clear let us put some basic principles in place which should stand the test of time and way beyond our lifetime i think which is every team should have an equal opportunity there should be uh, evenness in the way pay is determined there should be a fair market price discovery for the players those are some of the tenets that went into making the auction uh, or the, the ipl regulations far more stronger than what it was so that that was such a fascinating discussion i think there's more to discuss about the use of data and algorithms in sport in terms of audience engagement in terms of the economics of the sport itself uh, broadcasting rights and so on hello viewers and listeners thank you for listening us to us today it's been a great chat with sundar raman on how data and ai is a key influencer in the world of sports and the ipl both on the field of play and off it we'll be back for more with sundar in the next episode on broadcasting franchise economics audience engagement and the metaverse slaves to the algo is available on youtube spotify google and apple podcasts we release a new episode every fortnight or sometimes even every week and if you really like this episode do not forget to like share and subscribe remember to stay safe and more importantly to stay relevant in the age of data and ai we do not want to be a slave to the algo thank you